Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. You know, at my age, you start to think about certain things more than you used to. One of those things, I've I've been wondering what retirement would look like for me. Uh... I've had a few conversations with my wife about it. You know, in, in three years, I'll be eligible for the traditional Social Security retirement thing. Uh, and I got to tell you, my, my attitude about that has changed over the last several years on the subject. I mean, at one point, I thought it'd be great to just sit and just read. Because that's like my primary hobby. It's what I like to do most. Um, most of my days in the future, if, if the Lord would permit, you know, permit that or write as well, uh, maybe travel here and there, that would be cool. Uh, but quite honestly, as I've studied the scriptures, you know, more and more, and I was even having a conversation about this with a church preacher yesterday, I don't see retirement being a thing for me or for most of God's people. I, I think the Lord is glorified in our work and has us work pre-fall, Adam and Eve were working. And, and, and I think we're to serve others as long as we're able. And so for me, it's preaching and teaching and ministry for just as long as I can. And, and the Lord's given me an interesting ministry. Marty and I joke about this sometimes since we planted our church. And that is, I, I've become like an unofficial pastor to some other pastors and people from other churches that are not even a part of our church or were in our church and and moved away, and, and, and I get calls all the time. Um, help me with some doctrinal or theological issue or a personal problem they're having or a, or a church thing. I just got a call from somebody in the mission field about that um, a couple of days ago. And so, you know, I feel honored and flattered by that, even though I wasn't crazy about it in, in the beginning. It's a bit of a struggle, you know, because I think... We take shepherding seriously here. We've got a flock here that we have to shepherd. And uh, I thought that was more than enough, you know. And I serve in a mission field also as a missionary. And, and, and I thought, you know, that's good. But as God showed me otherwise, I mean, there's always ministry opportunities for us that he puts in our path. So I don't think I'm going to quit making disciples and maturing and multiplying disciples just because I get older. Um, I think I'm only going to stop when God, who called me into, into ministry, says, okay, that's enough. You can come up now. And uh, so that's my story. I'm sticking to it. And, and I think the Apostle Paul has been a model for me on this. Really has. This has been a, a super text in that way. When you read it on the surface, you think, oh, this is like interesting little travel story. But it's a lot more than that. Because you know a picture paints a thousand words, doesn't it? You've heard that? If you follow Paul's teaching, a lot of it is very doctrinal, very logical, reasonable. He makes these linear arguments, a lot of theology. And I'm into that stuff. I love all of that. But there comes a time when you need to relate to something, a truth. Sometimes you need a picture. You need a model. Someone that makes the truth seem relatable. Or true. Okay? We need to see truth sometimes. And so that's what's going on here in this text. Because in chapter 1 and 2 of Philippians, now that we're back in that book, 
Paul was teaching this church doctrinally to expect suffering, persevere through it even. We call the series The Christian's Joy. That's not to be the world's joy, happiness tied up in materialism, very temporary, fleeting, okay? Not that version. Christian joy is soul-satisfying. It's deep. It's contentment in Christ. And so Paul's been personally modeling this with his prison letter from Rome. He even argues that suffering, remember this, suffering is a gift from God. And Paul was happy to suffer for Christ because he still had a chance to preach the gospel and make disciples and advance the kingdom while he was in jail. He thought that was pretty cool. And so he's telling them, as we sang this morning, to live lives worthy of the gospel by working out your salvation that God works in us. And he also said, God will finish what he started with us. And I think a key to all that is humility and banking on the sovereignty of God. Because Paul put forth Jesus as the ultimate perfect example of humility on earth. How to do it. That's a picture. Paul gave us a picture of himself and his own experience. He understands that we, he was in a no-lose scenario with his life and ministry. What do I mean? What's the worst thing that could happen to Paul if he died being persecuted for the church, which, by the way, he was persecuting the church some years before? He said, absent from the body, present with the Lord, to live is Christ, to die is... So... He said it's far better to be with Christ. So he had this right perspective on suffering. If I suffer and die, I go to be with Jesus. No problem. In fact, he was torn, he said, whether to stay here and minister or be with Jesus. And I think he expected he might remain for a while longer, which he did. But either way, he's doing the will of the Lord. So we've seen Christ and Paul in this letter so far picture for us or model the joy we're supposed to have while we're here. And part of that involves, we said, shining rather than whining. No complaining, which is where we left off in this study. And so we pick it back up here where it looks like Paul's making travel plans. He's got these guys going all over the place back and forth. Why is he doing that? I think he's painting another picture here for us. He's going to show us two models, as Pastor George mentioned, joyful lives ministering, doing kingdom ministry with the gospel. He picks two close friends of his that represent the kind of people that you know, want to be like, and love in the church. And they are Timothy and Epaphroditus. Those are the two friends that are going to model kingdom ministry in two ways. In word and in deed. And we're going to look at each one of those. So let's start looking at kingdom ministry. The models of it in word starting in verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Paul wants to be glad with some news. And he begins by saying, Lord willing, I want to send Timothy to you so that when he comes back, I'll get good news of what's happening with you all. Now we know something about Timothy, don't we? He's an apprentice of Paul, who was his mentor. Relatively young man. 
He was appointed later to be the pastor and elder of the church at Ephesus. And uh, he came from a town in Galatia, which is kind of near modern-day Turkey today. And he grew up in this multicultural house. He had a Greek father, okay, a Gentile, and he had a Jewish Christian mother. And this grandmother had really discipled him. So it was like a mixed family, and we can relate to that. And Paul just took to him, poured into him, discipled Timothy, prepared him for the gospel ministry and missions. And being uncircumcised, okay, he was a Gentile. Get this, knowing they were going to preach the Jews and Gentiles, talk about ministry sacrifice, Paul had Timothy as an adult circumcised so they could minister to the Gentiles without being a gospel stumbling block if that came up. He didn't do it to, you know, to compromise any truth. It was just to better connect with the Jews. So Timothy was really instrumental in Paul's ministry from early on. They served together in Corinth, Macedonia, Jerusalem. In fact, he helped Paul write the book of Romans and five other letters in the New Testament, including Philippians. In fact, it's said that Timothy was Paul's authorized representative of the gospel. In fact, for years, Paul relied on Timothy so much when he was under house arrest in Rome that he may not have been quite ready to send him on to Philippi. But he's going anyway. He's going anyway. And let me tell you, that's a tough decision in and of itself. Pastor George and I talk about this, this, this dilemma that pastors kind of have in South Florida that are serious about loving their people and shepherding. Uh, I, I've, I've come up with a phrase for it. I blogged about it once. I, I consider myself to be a foster pastor. <laughs> the same idea as a foster parent. And it really is that way. Um, you, you pour into people, they come into your life, and then they just go out of your life. They move. They have to move for certain reasons or job or economic or what have you, a variety of reasons. And so you get them and you lose them. So it's this kind of transaction going on. And God's been good to us. As we've had several families move out of South Florida, God's been sending us new people and coming in and it's refreshing but it's difficult i mean you love people for two weeks two years five years ten years and they go and they come and but paul is teaching us like that's okay pastor foster parenting foster pastoring is okay it's a good thing in my flesh i'm not particularly enamored by it i I don't love it but it's a reality look at verse 20 for i have no one like him talking about timothy Paul says, who will be genuinely concerned, literally really concerned for you, for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So Timothy and Paul, literally in the original language, are of one spirit. They had a lot in common, great affection for the Philippian church. They cared, both of them, about this church. That church knew these two guys were the real deal. Unlike all the others that had deserted Paul, by the way, after his arrest. In fact, Paul, in writing his second letter to Timothy, reminded him of having been neglected or abandoned, betrayed on three different occasions. And in contrast, though, he's got Timothy. According to the Greek, it says he was preoccupied. He was burdened for this church. So Paul and Timothy were loyal to their churches. And Timothy's attitude was very Christ-like in this. And again, sir, as an example, as Christ and Paul did, I mentioned humility being a key. Go further back up in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And and this should be marked in your Bible. This is a key passage about doing life together. Because 
Paul wrote there, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that's what these men of God were doing. They were truth tellers. And I'm sure they weren't the kind of guys, pastors, to bash the churches they planted and ministered to. Because if you bash a church, you're going to bash its leaders and its people. And we've got to be careful with that because we're to love what Christ loves, right? Christ loves his church. It goes on. But you know, Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. So in the original language, Timothy was tested, approved by Paul and the church. And he not only served, the Greek word used there, doulos, is the idea of a slave. So he slaved the way he worked in the gospel. So he's already proved himself as a worthy preacher, teacher of the gospel. The Philippians knew Timothy. They loved him. He'd served there before. He's kind of like God's right-hand man. And they're awaiting him, figuring Paul's not going to make it to them personally because he's in jail. So he and Paul are like spiritual soulmates. They trust each other in what is a father-son relationship, the way Paul puts it. Because in his letters to Timothy, Paul also calls him a uh, dear child. He refers to this young man as a genuine child. And I think as you look at the church, past, present, and future... Let me tell you something. I think every one of you need that kind of relationship in the faith. You need a spiritual relationship, whether it's someone in this church or your family that's Christian, a friend in the faith, maybe from another church. Or You need to be in that kind of relationship in either direction. And sometimes if you can't find one, let me tell you, your mentors have to come from the Bible. Maybe you read Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith, a particular person in Scripture, good books, biographies, whatever. But all of us can stand having a father-son or mother-daughter relationship in Christ, in the flesh, with people, with brothers and sisters, okay? Someone you can trust, you can love, learn from, you can watch, listen to their lives, like what Paul and Timothy are doing. And to get started, I'll tell you, all it takes is a question like this, because you might be wondering, how do you, how do you start something like this? It might be as simple as, can I spend some time with you? Can I watch, learn from your life, get into the word with you, pray um, just together? I want to grow in grace and Christ-likeness. I'd like to disciple my wife and children, do better at that. I'd like to order my family a little better. I think you can help me with that. Or you can do it from the mentor perspective. Like Paul, you see someone maybe younger in the faith and you say, brother or sister, uh, I feel like we have a connection. You may be fast. And you want to get to the next level fast. Yeah. Faithful, available, servant-minded, and teachable. And you notice that. And maybe they want to grow in discipleship and Christ-likeness. So you say, would you like to meet periodically and do some life together? Something like along those lines. That's what Paul and Timothy were doing at the church in Philippi. We go back there, verse 23. So Paul writes, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it'll go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Soon. I myself. I want to get there soon. Now remember this is a prison letter. Okay. Paul is actually chained to a guard in Rome while he's writing this. 
He's awaiting trial before the governor of Rome. Maybe he may even get to Caesar on appeal. He could really use Timothy and Epaphroditus to stay with him, help him, maybe with his defense, provisions, until he figures out what's going on with him. Which is, by the way, either execution or release. And that's eventually what happened to him, as you find out when you get done reading the book of Acts. So he remained in this Roman jail. He's writing, preaching for a couple of years. He was released for a relatively short period of time. He returns to Philippi like he said he wanted to. He says he'll be confident he would make it back to that church. He did. But then he returned to Rome. He was arrested again. And he was tried a final time. He was convicted of gospel preaching. And then he was sentenced to death. But what sticks out to me about Paul and what he says about Timothy is that Timothy was a preacher, a teacher, a future pastor, an evangelist who cared about people. He wasn't one of those hit and run preacher speakers. In fact, Paul mentions in two other letters besides this one that he would send Timothy out just to encourage and exhort churches. And I have to tell you, the best pastors, the best evangelists that I know are those that truly love and care for their people. They show it both in word and in deed. And and I can say honestly, without self-serving, I think that's very true of your pastors. I I think you can tell your pastors love and care about you. I think you can tell that we smell like the sheep, right? That's a little pastor talk. That simply means we like to be around the sheep. So we look like you, talk like you, look like you a little bit, you know? So for Timothy, I'll tell you, it was primarily in the ministry of the word, both publicly and privately. I'm sure Timothy did life with the church, by the way. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he broke bread with them, spoke into their life, just like Paul had taught Timothy to do that. In fact, I want to show you in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Again, I'll just read the verse. This kind of serves as the paradigm for our discipleship process in this church, as you know. Paul said, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's how we try to do it here. This is why... as Pastor George mentioned in the announcements this morning, I'm excited about this new initiative that our pastors are aiming to at least once a week visit you. Every month from here on out, our members, our regular attenders, to break some bread, get into your home, get into how you're doing in a more personal, intimate way with your walk. Um, talk about how you're doing with the word, prayer, resource you. Help you to grow, mature your faith, in really meaningful, practical ways. And I believe that's what Paul and Timothy had already been doing. They were committed to doing again with the church of Philippi. But it's a process. You can't just rush into this and do all this. There's a story about a contemporary music performer. He visited a pastor one day. He announced he'd been saved and he wanted to serve the Lord right away. So he says, what do I do next? And the pastor says, well, I suggest you become members of a good church and start growing. And the pastor even asked him, is your wife a Christian? And the musician said, no, no, she isn't. Um, I hope to win her to Christ one day, but, but do I have to wait to serve? I mean, I'd like to do something for God right now. Mm, so he says, no, you don't have to wait to witness for the Lord. Get busy in a church, 
use your talents for, the, for Christ. And the guy says, but you don't know who I am. I'm a big-time performer. Everybody knows me. So here's what I want to do. I want to start my own organization, my own ministry, make Christian records, and I want to appear before big crowds. Talk about the Lord. And uh, the pastor warned him, said, if you go too fast, you may hurt yourself in your testimony. The place to start is winning people right at home, and then God will give you places of service as he sees that you're ready. Meanwhile, just study the Bible, give yourself a chance to grow. The man didn't take that counsel. Instead, well-intended, he set up a big organization, went out of town, went out on his own. His success lasted about a year. And not only did he lose his testimony, but because he wasn't strong enough to carry the burdens that come with all of that public ministry, but the constant traveling took him far from his wife and kids constantly. He drifted into what was thought of as a fringe group. He disappeared from public ministry. A broken, bankrupt man. And the pastor said that happened because his branches went out further than his roots went deep. And when that happens, he said, you eventually fall. Paul didn't make that mistake with Timothy. He gave him time to get his roots in the ground. And then he enlisted him to work on his missionary tours, trained him slowly, surely, teaching him, giving him opportunity to teach with some help, having him under supervision, I'm sure, till he was ready to preach and minister out on his own. In fact, as Paul's life is coming to an end in that second letter, the final letter he wrote in the Bible to Timothy, he said his life's being poured out as a drink offering. Among his final instructions were these. He said, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I think every one of us in Christ can take heed to that call. Obey that. I really do. And that's going to take us to our next model of kingdom ministry. Starts in verse 25. Take a look at it. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. This is the regular church member that we relate to so often. He's just a church member. He's a servant. He's a minister in deeds or actions in the Philippian church. We don't have any record that he was a preacher or teacher. He likely gave up his family for a season, the work and friends he had at Philippi, so he could volunteer, come and serve alongside the Apostle Paul, who calls him a true companion in chapter 4. But the difference between this guy and that entertainer example I just told you about was Paul trained him, equipped him in ministry. Okay? And Paul refers to him in four different ways, which really talks about the love and respect he had for this servant of God. And we're going to look at these four characteristics, see how you fit in and how you're doing in comparison one by one. Because Epaphroditus is very similar to you, I think. He's the disciple and church member. Remember, he's not a pastor or a preacher, maybe. He's primarily a servant of God. So the first thing Paul says is he's a co-worker. He's a partner in ministry. Two are better than one, right? They simply work together like many of you do in our church ministry, which we're very grateful for, by the way. You may be part of the praise team. You may be a greeter here at the church. You may be part of our fellowship or stewardship team. Not all of us 
work in teams, but many of us do. For instance, our sidewalk counseling and prayer ministry over at the Planned Parenthood here in Pembroke Pines. Uh, We wouldn't want Lone Rangers out there, by the way, in that environment. That's a pretty dark place. So we team up. And that ties into the second mark or model here, which Epaphroditus was a soldier. Missions and ministry, I don't mind telling you, involve some spiritual warfare, one level or another. The enemy of your soul doesn't want Christians serving one another in or out of this place. He'd rather you not. He'd rather keep you busy on less important things. He doesn't want you loving on and caring for one another that we're called to do, expected to do, because that advances the kingdom, you see, the kingdom of Christ. Remember, you have two kingdoms in conflict. There's a kingdom of darkness. There's a kingdom of light. There's a kingdom of Satan. There's a kingdom of the Savior. They don't get along, obviously. They're at odds. But Epaphroditus risked his life, his health, I think, to carry the Philippian church's ministry, uh, ministry missionary offerings to Paul. Maybe some other messages to, to the Apostle Paul in Rome. In fact, if you skip over chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says, I'm well supplied. I got full payment and more, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So he and that church, they love Paul. They cared for Paul and vice versa. Love means just simply, in the Christian sense, caring. Serving, giving. And that was not only a duty for Epaphroditus, probably a spiritual gift. And we'll talk about that. We all get spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit. And that would include maybe the third one here, messenger. Epaphroditus delivered probably food, clothing, the parchments of the Bible, goods, messages, like I just mentioned. In fact, that word messenger is interesting. Apostelos, where we get the word what? Sounds like apostles. Right. You know what apostle is? It's a messenger. All of you, in a sense, in this room are Christians who are messengers, meaning sent ones. You have a message to take to the world. You're like an ambassador. You're a representative. That's what the word in Greek literally means. We're not talking about the office of the apostle. Those 12 that followed Jesus started the church in Jerusalem. It's not what we're talking about. Epaphroditus is one of those guys, one of those people, men and women, that were sent out by the church to do ministry of some sort. So they were apostles, lowercase a, in that sense. Okay? Now, the fourth thing is a minister. Interesting word where we get the word liturgy from, liturgical, like worship. Epaphroditus was that kind of a servant, servant to Paul's needs. What I'm talking about is the gift of service now. Four different spots in the New Testament, in case you're curious, are lists of the gifts of the Spirit. It's not all inclusive. Some of them even overlap. If you counted all the gifts that are listed, you'd come up with almost two dozen. All right? But I'm going to show you a place. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, that letter. Because there, Peter is going to echo Paul really closely. He's going to sum up all of these gifts in basically two general categories that you should have in mind. First Peter 4, beginning in verse 9. Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. grumbling. There's the whining word. Oh, 
as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Oracles of God are just the words, sayings of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. All right? So there you see it. Categories of ministry, gifts in word and deed. It'll basically fall in one category or the other. And like Timothy, some of us do both. There are those of you in this room, you know the word. You can speak as a discipler to another brother, sister, and encourage them, exhort them with the word uh, from the Bible, which is why you may be called here in this church, if you haven't been already, to perhaps at some point lead a small group. Preach, teach if you're called and qualified. You maybe serve as an officer here. And if you're, that's if you're biblically called and gifted. So there's always that kind of ministry and service and worship to the Lord. For many of us, though, it's what Romans 12 calls the gifts of service. It involves generous giving, acts of mercy. It's all interrelated. And today, what does that kind of caring look like? It's as basic as giving money to someone who's destitute, needy Christians, looking after aged parents, maybe, uh, serving uh, as simply as being kind to a widow, orphans in distress, the book of James talks about that, serving pregnant, even angry women and families on the sidewalk of an abortion center, as we try to do. It's bringing meals to someone. Peter talked about hospitality, opening your home to host a shepherd group meeting, whether it be you want to do the family fellowship night there, men, women, whatever. It maybe is helping here with fellowship and refreshments, setting up, breaking down equipment, seats and stuff like that, midweek meetings or Sunday. We could use the help, and many of you do that. And like we tell churches, I deal with different churches at the Love Life Prayer Walks. Everybody, everybody in church can and should do something. Something. Everyone can serve in or out of the church in some capacity. Like I read a story several years ago about an elderly woman. She was a widow, and she was restricted in her activities, which she could do, but she was eager to serve Christ. So after praying about it, Next day, she put a small ad in her local newspaper. Back in the day, there was this thing called newspapers. And you put an ad there. Okay? I miss those, actually, quite a bit. Get the ink on your hand and everything. And her deal was she was eager to play piano. So this ad in the paper said, Pianist will play hymns by phone daily for those who are sick and despondent. The service is free. Isn't that cool? And the ad had a number to dial. So when people called, she would ask, what hymn do you want to hear? She'd hold the phone. Within a few months, she's playing. People are getting cheered up. Several hundred people. And many of them just eventually poured out their hearts to her. And she would help and encourage these people. It all started with the ministry, the service of playing piano over the phone. For others, it might be leveraging their businesses and its influence, assets. There's a Cuban restaurant owner in this town. And they contribute big time to the pro-life cause. And one of them even thought giving money was not enough. She needed to do more. So she served as a mentor 
to a woman that chose life as a result of the sidewalk ministry. They grew close in that relationship. She'd help her with doctor's appointments and just getting a budget together, doing all kinds of things. She served in that way. They grew so close in that relationship to the extent that the mother invited this restaurant owner, now a sister in Christ, to be the godmother of her child. And she accepted. And that's been a God-glorifying Christ-exalting, life-changing experience for both of those women. Maybe your service will be a little unspectacular. You can give a cup of cold water to someone who's thirsty, mow somebody's lawn, fix a personal computer, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. I had quite a dilemma with that this weekend. But there are days, there are ways today that our Savior would have us care for people, okay? Especially broken people. So there's some service, there's some ministry for everybody. And I'm going to give you a hint to figure this out because a lot of people, I don't, I don't know my spiritual gift. You don't have to take this exhaustive uh, self-examination personality test to see what kind of gift you have because all you're doing is kind of psychoanalyzing yourself. You already know who you are and what you're like. So I'm going to give you a, a little hint in how you find your spiritual gifts. Okay? Three things to think about. This is really complex. Number one, what's your calling or what's your desire? What do you want to do? What do you feel like doing? What would you like to do in ministry serving in or out of the church? Number two, gifting. What has God gifted you, skilled you to do? What have you tried and what kind of feedback did you get? I was asked about my testimony um, a few times this weekend. And, you know, how is it that somebody becoming a pastor? How do you get involved in this? And in my prior church, where I was a member with my wife, my young kids, they just asked me, do you want to teach Sunday school one day? And I did. And I loved it. And it seemed to resonate with a lot of members and grew. And it was a wonderful experience. And then they called me into ministry to be a pastor involved in discipleship. That's how it started. I just said, oh, do you need someone to do that? Yeah, I think I'd like to try that. You know, I, I'd had a background in speaking and stuff like that, so I did it. And, you know, I mean, the feedback is good. If I had done it and everybody hated it and I confused everybody, I might come away going, that oh, might not be my spiritual gift. Might not be it. Maybe you got to find something else. And that's how you kind of get it. And then third is, like I said before, need. What is the need? What needs to be done here? What ministry opportunities are available for you to fill in and out of the building with your calling and gifting? And then we're going to see how, here real quick, how this kingdom ministry continues. Go back to our text in verse 26. He's talking about Epaphroditus, for he's been longing for you all. He's been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Epaphroditus is longing, craving, the word says, to get back with his congregation, to make sure they're okay. And get this, Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to the church prematurely because he, Epaphroditus, is anxious and distressed about the bad news they're getting about him being sick. He's so worried about them thinking he's in really bad shape and he's sick and he was, it says here, near death. That he was, according to the Greek, full of heaviness. He's in anguish and despair. The church won't be able to handle the news how sick I am. 
It's how much he cares for them. And Paul says, I'm going to send them back. You know, it sounds like a reaction similar to what the Lord had in John 11. Remember Lazarus died and the sisters are very emotional about it. Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. That's it. It's just compassion. Do we have compassion for our people? Verse 27. Indeed he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. Not only him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now this is interesting. That word ill, literally translated as weak, you can, how is he sick? It could be physical, it could be spiritual or mental. Like, you know, you're weak in your faith, maybe. Because he was a partner of Paul in the mission field. Maybe he'd help put the meetings together, set up stuff in the public square or the synagogue where they preach. He might have got physically beat up a few times there. Maybe he was just spiritually weak by the stress. We don't know for sure. He might have been arrested. And again, it says he was near death. Verse 30 says, he was exposed to danger. And then it says this, interestingly enough, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That sounds like a negative, but not really. That last phrase means Epaphroditus just did what the rest of the Philippian congregation was unable to do because they weren't there in the flesh with Paul. So Epaphroditus did it. Okay? And then... You go to verse 28, Paul's like, I'm all the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, so that I may be less anxious. I'll be less worried about you once you get Epaphroditus back. You know, I can't wait for you to see him. Just amazing. Just the compassion, the affection that you're seeing in this church family back and forth with each other. So receive him in the Lord, Paul says, with all joy. And honor such men. Welcome him. I mean, after all, he nearly died for the work of Christ. You know, servants like Epaphroditus, I'll be honest, they deserve that kind of honor and appreciation. We said that back in chapter 1 and Romans 16, that Christians who love and they work and they serve for the church and the kingdom, they're worthy of respect. That's what that word literally means, of recognition. There's nothing wrong with that. We don't have to be, you know, exhibit false humility. Oh, stop, stop. Praise the Lord. Yeah, we praise the Lord, but it's okay to thank you and honor you for what you've done. I mean, he risked his life in ministry to do what Paul said couldn't be done from long distance. So as I close, many years ago, someone once said every Christian is called by the master to follow him. That following may be in a carpenter's shop, it may be in preaching and teaching. Okay? Word indeed. But here's the idea. All Christians are ordained, commanded to bear fruit. There's no such thing as a non-fruit-bearing Christian. If you're a Christian not bearing fruit, red flag, ding-dong, bells ringing, something's wrong. Something's wrong. You're not where you should be in some way, shape, or form. That's just who we are. We're fruit bearers. Jesus said, by their fruits, you will know them. You'll know who's really a Christian. By the fruit they bear. God's not interested in professing Christians. He's interested in spirit-possessing Christians. Because if you're possessed by the Lord, the profession will be clean and true, and it will come out. 
Humility and sacrifice. That's the keys again. So the easiest way to start, I would just tell you, you know, find yourself a model of kingdom ministry to follow. Fill a need. Like Paul and his two friends in our text. I'll put it this way. It's easier to do all of this. Live the Christian life. Serve in ministry when you're not afraid to say this. I'm not afraid to die. Like Paul. Christians should not be afraid to die. I'm not talking about the how die. No one wants to suffer unnecessarily, tragically. But death should not scare Christians. Because Paul said, absent from the body, to live as Christ, to die is. So who doesn't want gain? Profit, right? It's easier to do if these three things happen. When you want to say, I'm not afraid to die. If you're, if you're saying that in your heart and mind, number one, you are free to focus on the things that really matter in life. When you can tell yourself, I'm not afraid to die. Number two, you're indifferent to your own personal fate. Like Paul, what happens to you? Because the kingdom of Christ comes first. And then third, if you say to yourself, I'm not afraid to die, you're just utterly consumed with doing the will of God, obeying him. God, send me, call me, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. What's the worst that can happen? I get a promotion? I'll give you an example. Great example. I don't know if you recognize these names, and I'm done. Nate Saint, Roger Yodarian, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, Jim Elliott. I don't know if some of you know this story. 1955. These five young men, they were all under the age of 35. They gathered in Ecuador and they had this vision of reaching a tribe of Indians called the Alcas. And that word literally means savage. That was a name given to them by other tribes. And they lived deep in the rainforest. No one had ever gone there and presented the gospel to them before. These five missionaries, they were all highly trained, deeply devoted to God. They started praying about how they can make contact with these Indians. So in September that year, they began flying over this Alka village and they would lower pots containing gifts for the Indians. And eventually the Alkas were brave enough to go out there and bring in the gifts. In January 1956, these five men decided the time had come to make contact in person. After much time, they went out there, they established a base camp on this sandy beach of the Carare River as it was called. And then very famous event took place. January 8th, 1956, about 3.30 in the afternoon, they were speared to death by the Indians who mistakenly thought they had come to hurt them. And the news shocked the world. It made every front page newspaper. It was the cover of Life magazine. It's been made into a movie. Beyond the Gates of Splendor was one. The End of the Spear was the other one. I mean, the news just shocked the world. And many people wondered, how can young men with so much promise waste their lives that way? And when the journals of Jim Elliot were published years later, they were found to contain this very famous sentence. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'll repeat that. That's the kind of thing you write down or remember somewhere. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You think Paul would agree with that? I think so. 
Once you decide your life's not going to last forever and doesn't belong to you, it belongs to the one who gave it to you, you are free to invest in a cause that's greater than yourself. You give up what you can't keep so that in the end you gain what you can never lose. So this is what Paul meant, by the way, as we close in prayer when he said in chapter 1, verse 20, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, Paul wrote, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to say those words and live them out and to believe them, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, thank you for the models you've put in our life in this text. The Lord, Jesus, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, so many others of these models of kingdom ministry that we're to follow. Help us to be better co-workers, soldiers, messengers, and servants, ministers, Lord God, of the gospel in word and deed. Help us to search you, to seek you, to try out our spiritual gifts, look at our calling, look at our gifting. Also look at where there's a need, Lord God, so that we can serve you. In and out of this building, Lord God, as so many do, and we're so grateful for that. And Lord, I pray for someone today, this life of ministry starts with becoming a Christian. I figure in a room like this, there is someone here that may not know Jesus as Lord and Savior and not sure about it. What they do know just by their conscience, just by the guilt and shame they sometimes sense over their sin, they know. They know they're sinner. And if they know that you exist, they're accountable to you with their life. They're responsible to you. And you seek fellowship with them. You want to worship with them. You want, you want them to worship you in eternity. But in the position they're in, they can't. Because your word says you cannot look upon sin. Meaning you can't be intimate in a relationship and fellowship with sin. You're too holy. You're too just. You're too righteous. So may someone today that realizes that needs to get right with you to do business with you. I pray they will just repent and believe. Just very simply, they will understand who they are today without you and they're going to turn to you make a commitment to change their heart and mind about who they are and where they're at and where they're going they'll turn to you and trust in jesus alone god in the flesh for the forgiveness of sins that jesus paid for their sins on the cross they don't have to do any religious works they don't have to give anything to the church they don't have to become a member of a church to become a christian they don't have to do this or do that they just have to turn to you and trust in jesus May that happen today, Lord God. And may someone here who's going through that process today is their day of salvation. They'd come and see us during the fellowship time or afterward or call us or text us and we can talk and, about how they could know for sure they have that assurance that they're in Christ and that their life is transformed and they'll have this deep soul satisfactory joy for now and forevermore. So we pray these things, Lord, that we'd be a blessing to you Thank you for blessing us today as we've sang the word, prayed the word, preached and teach the word. Now we'll give and we'll fellowship according to the word. In Jesus' name and all God's people said. 
Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 